Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to History Podcast about the Middle East, Title yeah. in Progress. I'm your host, I'm Drake. Uh, and this is Achim Payton. Hello, I'm the first guest of this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Afghanistan. That's right. Afghanistan is a bit of an interesting topic, going long, long history. Uh, it's been continuously occupied for, I believe, about 3,500 years. And in recent times, uh, there's been a lot of violence there. And we're going to kind of talk about how it ended up that way and why things are like that. Sure. <clears throat> I've, uh, I've been interested in Afghanistan ever since I read Khaled Hosseini's The Kite Runner. It's like a pretty popular like historical fiction book um, about a, a Pashtun boy who like grows up in Afghanistan during the Russian and American occupations. Um, and ever since then, I've just been like super interested in the history and, and I've liked researching it and I'd like to go there one day, but um, yeah, let's talk about it. Alright, so to kind of understand what Afghanistan is, why it's the way it is, uh, we're going to have to go back to the ancient world, to pre-Islamic Middle East, and talk a bit about the people who were in that area and the significance of that area. So let's talk about the geography first. Uh, Afghanistan is very mountainous, very rough terrain, uh, which has made it hard for people to conquer in the past. We'll get to that in more detail later. And very importantly, there is a pass that goes through the mountains in Afghanistan and into Pakistan, and that is called the Khyber Pass. And historically, it has been a major trade and migration route through Central Asia. Um, and was a key element of the Silk Road for trade coming from China into Europe and Africa and vice versa. It's, it's like, it's also landlocked. Like the only way to get through it is by land. You have to take the pass. And it, um, it was a, a key factor um, when the British and the Russian Empire were fighting over it to gain access to trade to India, which made it like an important historical landmark, which is why it gained so much attention and why we're talking about it now. I'm not a giant expert on the ancient world, but going back we've got, uh, there, there's of course you know, no nation states as we know them today, um, but the land we know as, Pakistan, as uh, Afghanistan was occupied by various people throughout history. Um, probably going to start with the Achaemenids unless you want to go wherever you want. Yeah, so the Achaemenid Persians who were uh, Cyrus the Great conquered much of Western Asia, and they ruled it for a while until Alexander the Great showed up, and he made it into Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan even, and not much past that. I have an alarm set. So uh, you can get this out later. Um, Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Nice. Uh, the, and Alexander the Great goes through, and in, in the wake of his death, it, you know, his empire breaks apart. We get the successor kingdoms, the Diyadakai, and uh, Afghanistan becomes largely part of the kingdom of Bactria, which is a Helleno-Persian empire kind of thing. Lasts for a while. Yeah, so, um, I mean, other ancient stuff that happens, we get... Large migrations of Central Asian people who end up all over the place. Uh, 
Notably, one of these groups is the Pontic nomadic people known as the Sakha, who were partially responsible for the fall of Rome. The Romans knew them as Huns and Scythians. Um, those were two different groups, both originating from the Pontic steppe. And when did they sort of come into play around this area? In uh, when did they migrate in? I'm not entirely sure on that one, unfortunately. My ancient knowledge is a little bit weak, but did you look it up? Several thousand years ago. Go ahead and look that up. How do you spell Sakha? <laughs> S A K A. Unless you want that in a Pashto. No, no. <laughs> yeah, we'll be waiting for that to load. So yeah, um, Afghanistan is super interesting uh, because of the the melding of different cultural groups. It's mostly dominated by Pashtun people who are considered like the the ethnic Afghan people, quote quote, um, and that's like caused some serious problems between them and other tribal groups throughout the years. But um, Afghanistan has been again occupied for like. 3,500 years, so there's a lot of different cultural influence there. Interestingly, almost the entire nation is Islamic. When you have a lot of different groups of people from a lot of different walks of life um, congregating in one area, you have like a different religious mix, but I guess because of, I don't know, and this is my only my speculation, but maybe just because of the, um, the extremism that the area is known for, it's like sort of been weeded out over the centuries. Yeah, actually, let's talk about how it became Islamic. Um, in the 8th century uh, and 9th centuries, we have the Caliphate, the enormous Islamic empire that originates in what is now Saudi Arabia and expands across North Africa, Middle East, all the way. It goes, the farthest reach we see of the Caliphate while it exists is Talash in Kyrgyzstan. And Kazakhstan. Nice. That one is in Kazakhstan. Uh, and that is almost, they, they made it almost to China. And so the population of people who were in what is now Afghanistan at the time of the Caliphate were, they were primarily uh, Zoroastrian or Buddhist. And they got conquered by an Arab state of the, the, the Caliphate, the Abbasids. And it took a while to convert them, actually. They, they kept uh, reverting when the armies would leave. Yes. And, but but uh, slowly it got promoted, and it really gets promoted later on with the Safavid Persians who control the area and are really strongly dedicated to this idea of spreading Persian culture and Islam to all of their lands. And they do this and, and over... Uh, quite a while, they do manage to convert Afghanistan to a majority Muslim country. Is this, and is that the Persian invasion pre-Alexandrian? This is post. So Alexander is long before Islam. Um, so Alexander, so that there's a few Persian emperors because we have the Achaemenid Persians, who are kind of the first Persian empire. They're ancient. They get conquered by the Greeks and break apart into many Hellenic Persian states. And these break apart further, and they, uh, the ones in Central Asia get conquered largely by Central Asian tribes. So we see, for example, one of the biggest successors, the one that occupies the modern-day Levant and Iran, um, was called the Seleucid Empire, named yes. after Seleucus I. And they 
uh, did, fell into steep decline fighting the Romans, and much of the kind of Persian region was taken over. The in Central Asia there was quite a bit of turmoil. I'm not going to get into that because it's really really complicated. But uh, there were refugees, tons and tons of refugees who ended up coming in, and this weakened Seleucid Hellenic state eventually becomes the Parthian Empire, hmm. um, which is not all of modern-day Persia, but a, a chunk of it. And this is not Persia, but the Romans, you'll find in their literature, refer to it as Persia, because they're trying to evoke this idea that um, like they're, you know, they're trying to follow the Greeks. The Greeks fought the Persians, so the Romans must also fight the Persians. But they're not the Persians anymore. They're Parthians. They're central regions. Right. Um, but they'll still refer to it as Persia. And they fight for about three hundred years with no one really gaining any ground. And eventually, though, Parthia falls apart from an internal rebellion that is a cultural, a Persian cultural revolution that uh, restores a, a kind of Persian state. Right. And this is called the Sasanian Empire. And they continue fighting the Romans, but now it's the Eastern Roman Empire around this time. Rome also falls into decline, Western Rome, and is destroyed by various outside forces, Visigoths and uh, Huns. And the, the Sasanians, if I remember correctly, are um, like are, are well known for the like Persian culture. So yeah. It's like the Persian cultural renaissance and all like the detailed rugs and like sculpted things and like beautiful artwork and things that we think of when we think of like Persia, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and we have tons of artifacts from then uh, because British took them and the Romans took them and stuff. So we, we yeah. Everyone stole their stuff. Yeah, anyway, so the, the Sasanians also do fall into decline and uh, are overrun by Turkmen. Um, and <clears throat> The two two major tribes of Turkmen control most of Persia, um, and we're we're getting now we're talking around fifteenth century, fourteenth century. The two major tribes are the white sheep and the black sheep, or in Farsi the white sheep are called no not not Farsi in Turkic uh, Proto Turkic they are the white sheep are called Akuyunlu and the black sheep are Karakuyunlu and. They fight wars back and forth for quite a while, and eventually, uh, Akoyunlu, they win. And the reason they're called that, we don't know, actually. I, I did look into this, I found some sources and stuff. The best reason we can find is that that's the colors of the sheep that they herded. That makes that sense. These were herding cultures, and so that's what they did. We are the people of the white sheep, but those are the people of the black sheep, and they have different sheep, so we must destroy them. Yep, and so they did. They destroyed the, the black sheep. There you go. Um, and eventually there does rise up the next Persian revolution. And these are the Safavids. And the Safavids are Persians who rise up in a, a declining uh, Turkish nomadic state. And they're Islamic. And they establish... Right, so this is, of course, long after the Caliphate. The Caliphate is 8th century. Most of this territory, including the Central Asian nomads, are Muslim at this point. Um, and the, the Safavids, they rise up and they end up building one of the most powerful empires in Asia, the, the Persian Empire at the time. And they, it was one of the three major Islamic empires 
the, known as the Gunpowder Empires, the other two being the Mughals and the Ottomans. <laughs> and we'll be definitely talking about the Ottomans and the Mughals more on this podcast. In fact, I believe even in this episode, the Mughals will come up again. Um, but yeah, so the Safavids take over, and they, during the, the colonial period, they do seriously fall into a decline. Um, the, and they end up becoming not a true vassal, they're, they're dubbed an ally, but they become a very much subservient ally to the Russian Empire. The Russian, Russian-Afghanistan connection is important just because it comes to a head in the mid-1970s. Uh, and Russia has sort of had its, its hand in Afghanistan since, like, the 1830s or so. Um, yeah, and that's what we're going to get to with the talking about the Great Game and yeah. the Anglo-Afghan Wars. So Russia is important. The Russian Empire and its ties to Afghanistan is important. And all of this is just to, just to emphasize the point that, like, uh, all these different people have come through the, the region of what is now Afghanistan and what was old Afghanistan and like different peoples, different mixings of cultures and tribes and, and conquering like, you know, these black sheep and white sheep and right and we also I totally glossed over uh, the Mongol conquests, the Mongols conquered Afghanistan um, and then a second time the Timurids under Tamerlane uh, also known as Timur he conquered Afghanistan and his troops were known for being incredibly brutal, and the estimates are about 17 million people died in South in Central Asia during Tamerlan's conquests there. So, because if you think about it, um, anyone on the European or the Asian side of Afghanistan um, needs to go through there to occupy any sort of other territory. So, if you're coming from India, you have to go through. Khyber Pass to get through Afghanistan to conquer anything else, unless you want to go through Russia, which is probably not a good idea. Um, and if you want Siberia is fairly inhospitable, yes. Right. <laughs> and if you want to go from the European side to access any of the trade or or land that is on the Asian side of Afghanistan, you have to go through Afghanistan. So it was pretty clamored over forever. Right. Of course, the Silk Road being one of the biggest trade routes in history. Uh, did go through the Khyber Pass, um, mm-hmm. coming from China, and yeah, so key key location for economics. And so the during the colonial period, then, uh, do you want to start going into the Anglo-Afghan Wars? Go for it. With All right. So we have this period that's often referred to in the West as the Great Game, which I think is a terrible term, but it refers to the diplomatic geopolitical conflict between Russia and Britain over South and Central Asia trade. Right. And this was kind of a big thing because the Persian Empire at the time was essentially a vassal of the Russian Empire, and India was controlled by the British Raj. So the Mughals, who uh, were in that area, they when the British showed up, they kind of propped them up and essentially vassalized them. And so you have the Mughal Empire, and which is not Mughals anymore, it's now the British Raj, and you have Persia, which is Russia. And so Afghanistan's kind of in the middle of this. And Britain is terrified that the Russians are going to invade Afghanistan. That Persian armies and Russian armies are going to show up and take control of it. And now they won't be able to control land trade from India back into Europe. Foreshadowing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so 
the so the British go to the so okay so a little, little context now let's go back to Afghanistan immediately prior to stuff getting real here we have the Durrani Empire which takes over in 1747 it's the first real like closest thing to an Afghan state we get before the 20th century. Uh, Ahmad Shah is the guy who founds this Congress and stuff. Anyway, one of his descendants now, we're looking, we're, we're in the 1830s, um, one of his descendants is Mahmud Shah, and he is not super popular, and one of his generals, who was pretty important, uh, whose name was Fateh Khan, mm. he ends up killing because he doesn't trust him, and this draws quite a bit of negative attention, including from Fateh Khan's brother, Dost Muhammad Khan, and he's quite an important figure in all this. So what happens is Dost Muhammad Khan leads an insurrection and places himself as the king of the Durrani Empire, which is no longer the Durrani Empire, it's now the Barakzai Empire, because he is a new dynasty. He is not related to the Duranis. And the British, when they show up, they fairly peacefully, I mean, a little bit of violence, but uh, they prop Mahmud Shah back up on the throne as their proxy. While this doesn't incite violence immediately, it's fairly unpopular, but they, they, the, um, the British understand that they have to pay bribes to the tribes, to the Afridi, to the Wardak, Maidan, Jaris tribes, and they... Um, in order to keep the peace. And the, the British, you know, they maintain a presence in of about 20,000 total people, only a few thousand of them being soldiers, um, hmm. probably 5,000 or so soldiers, and the rest being camp followers or people. Uh, and the, or it's, people. it's important to note that the majority of this army are not from Britain, they are sepoy. They're Indian troops. Um, there are a, a couple thousand British people as well, but the bulk are Sepoy. And mercenaries or from the occupation? Yes. Colonial provincial troops. Gotcha. So they are mandated to fight. And this this war actually kind of leads the Sepoy into and in, in the Indians in general into someone more disliking the British Empire as the result of the, that happened. So imagine that. We have the commander with two two leaders in Kabul at the time, and the British leaders. One of them is uh, General William Elphinstone. No, yeah, William Elphinstone. Elphinstone. So Elphinstone is. I don't remember his first name. Anyway, something British first name. Elphinstone, <laughs> and he was old and somewhat incompetent, and he was only given this post because his higher up wanted to hunt on his land in Ireland. Hmm. Um, that, that was the only reason that that he uh, got this position leading the British Garrison. And then we have British civilian leader, William Hay McNaughton, and he's important too. We'll get to him shortly. So he's much more confident, uh, kind of knows what he's doing, but is still kind of in over his head that Afghanistan, these people are way tougher than the British imagined them to be. Oof. And so what happens is um, the bribes, uh, so some, at some point in London, 
they're looking over their finances and they're like, why are we spending so much money in Afghanistan? What's the point of all this? And so they start cutting back on the bribes. And this makes a lot of people unhappy. And then also, the occupation itself is making people unhappy. They're, you know, uh, restricting the power and it's not necessarily the people that we're talking about here, but the feudal nobility, the lords, uh, the emirs. They are not happy with the situation. They feel that their freedoms are being limited. They feel that their religion is being marginalized. Um, They're all devout Sunni Muslims. They are not super happy with the situation. And now they're not even receiving bribes to compensate for it. <laughs> and so now we talk about another British guy. His name is Alexander Burns. And he is uh, a bit of a celebrity. He's an adventurer, an explorer kind of guy, very popular. I mean, there weren't tabloids in 1838, but the closest thing to tabloids, you know. The um, <laughs> old tabloid papers. Yes. So he he speaks Pashto. Wow. He dresses as an Afghan. And he, you know, takes part in Afghan culture. But little does he know, he's still seen as an outsider. Of course. Does he frequently travel to Afghanistan? He lives there. Okay. He's gotcha. living there full time at this point. And he's supposed to be helping the British uh, colonial government control things there. Right. So he, though, makes a mistake. He sleeps with the concubine of one of these feudal lords. Nice. Good move. And... More like Alexander Burns Bridges, am I right? Well, ironically, his last name... Uh, well, so, so this lord gathers his buddies up, and he's like, hey... It's time to put a stop to this. We're calling jihad. They're like, okay, let's take the bridge out. <laughs> and it, so Alexander Burns, he's just, he's, you know, there. He's not that important, but he's kind of the key that finally is the straw that breaks the camel's back and finally pushes these guys over the edge. Mm-hmm. They're already not happy with the occupation. They're not happy not being bribed. They're not happy the religion being restricted. And so they go to Alexander Burns' house and they set it on fire. Wow. And he runs out and they capture him. And I'm not going to go into details, but his headless body is found hanging on meat hooks in the central square the next day. So yeah, the, the British did not expect this kind of thing. Uh, they, they were, after the relative calm of the transition of power during installing Mahmoud Shah, well, so Dost Muhammad Khan pops back up and is like, hey, I'm king again. And uh, he's popularly supported and supported by most of the fighting men in Afghanistan, or at least in Kabul. And they besiege the garrison. At this time, Elphinstone is panicking. He has no idea what's going on. Um, <laughs> or what to do. He's, he's not, not a real leader. He's not a real leader. William Hay McNaughton makes two plans. First plan is he's, he hires assassins. He's wow. going to get someone to kill Dost Muhammad Khan. And then they're going to try and pop up Mahmoud Shah again and restore peace. What's the second plan? The second plan, he decides to go talk to... Mahmoud Shah. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, and this is after a few weeks of assassins not getting any results. So they're under siege and they they have to like, you know, move undercover. There's snipers. So that this is so this is it's important to note. 1830s, the British army used brown bessing muskets, which are very fast to reload, but very ineffective at long range. They have no rifle. Good information, very bad in rough terrain and long range engagements. The Afghans are using Jazayas. They're using homemade 
long rifles, hunting rifles. And so they can snipe at the British, and the British can't really do anything in return. So the, the British are under siege, and so William Henry McDonald goes and talks to Dost Muhammad Khan, and we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we do know that Dost Muhammad Khan knew about the assassins, and we do know that William Hay McNaughton was shot in the head. During while, during, while he, when he went to negotiate. And okay. according to popular folklore, Dost Muhammad Khan personally killed him. I like um, that. We don't know entirely what happened, but we can imagine that Dost Muhammad Khan shot William Hay McNaughton. So, Crazy. in light of this, uh, Elphinstone is like, oh shit, we just lost our last competent leader. So he decides to evacuate. They're going to flee through the Khyber Pass to Jalalabad, which is ruled, which is controlled by the British and has a large garrison under there. So his twenty thousand people, they start rolling into the mountains, and very poorly planned, poor logistics. They don't have enough supplies, and it's a blizzard. Mm. And there are the Afghan tribes whose bribes were not paid, so safe passage is. The opposite of guaranteed, right? The bribes were to keep them safe. So the Afridi would have protected these fleeing people had the bribes been paid, but they were not. So the Afridi raided their baggage trains, stole ship, killed people. Um, they would actually ambush British soldiers with like swords and stuff because the British were not information. The pass was too narrow. The terrain was too dense for them to fight effectively. And so dudes could just pop out with swords and rifles and kill British soldiers. And it was so cold, it's snowing, and the sepoy, they're from India, they're from the tropics. This is not their natural climate. This is too cold, and they start to die. It takes about a week for them to make it through the mountains, and by the time they reach the narrowest part of the pass, there are only, uh, I think, 200 people left. Out of 20,000? Out of 20,000. 200 people left. And by the time the force makes it out the other side and reaches the fortress of Jalalabad, there's one soldier left. That's it. And he's actually British. He's, he's from probably I think, Scotland or Northumbria. So he was more hardy to the cold. And in fact, most of the last few hundred people were Northern British types who were more adapted to the cold. But so a lot of people, including a lot of civilians, children, um, people who were just, you know, families and soldiers, families of the, the, you know, Smiths and workers and stuff who had followed the army, they're all dead. <laughs> 20,000 bodies are now lining the Cairo Pass. Jeez. And this one guy makes a to Lullabad. The British are horrified. They send what they call the Army of Retribution that right. pushes through the mountains, knocks down a few buildings in Kabul, shoots some people, and they goes home. And this is the end of British occupation in okay. Afghanistan for the next 40 years. <laughs> yes, they try again. So, the second Anglo-Afghan War is 40 years later. Um, they are again worried that the Russians, I believe it's Ivan IV, yep. are going to get Afghanistan on their side and it's going to, they're going to cut off, choke the trade coming from India. So, so really quickly, we've kind of set the stage here in that Afghanistan is a very hearty place with like very hearty people who know their land, which is very rough and rugged, and, and extremely or extremely devoutly religious and uh, very tightly bonded to their tribal allegiances. Right, and and throughout history we see that the people there have always had these traits. Like they've always been very devout and very 
protective of their culture, which is, um, I think, a really amazing and respectable thing, but also it makes it very, very, very hard to invade and occupy this particular location. So, fast forward 40 years. 40 years. So the British invade again, and this time um, they're a little more successful. They uh, do kind of take over again, but this time they're not planning on trying to stay there. So they don't try and replace anybody this time. Um, they established the, the Durand Line, which is a hard border between India and Pakistan that's going to be British controlled. And they signed the Treaty of Gandamak, which essentially makes it so the Afghans are, have full autonomy except for foreign affairs, which will be managed by the British. And really that just means they won't talk to Russians. <laughs> um, there will be no diplomacy with Russia. This is short-lived uh, arrangement. Thirty years later, we get the third Anglo-Afghan war. So we have a guy who is named uh, Habibullah Khan, and he is friendly with the British. He gets deposed, and or he gets assassinated and replaced by his brother uh, Nasrallah Khan. And Nasrallah Khan rules Afghanistan for one week. <laughs> um, before being displaced by Amanullah Khan, also, who is the son of Habibullah, so his nephew, and who declares himself king. Um, interestingly, we don't know exactly who hired the assassin to kill Habibullah, but the, the assassin, his name was Mustafa Sabir. He was Indian. And he was ended up being captured in Turkey and executed, and during his trial said that he had been hired by the British government. Hmm. Uh, I'm not totally sure why the British wanted to kill him, or if they did, but I'm just going to leave it there because that's not my field of expertise. Pretty anyway, so Amanullah, he is, sorry, the Treaty of Rawalpindi, they say, you know, we're now totally independent from Britain, we can talk to whoever the fuck we want. We're going to maintain the Durand line is now the border rather than some diplomatic line. Mm -hmm. It's now the fixed border between the British Raj and us. And he starts to attempt to modernize the country. So uh, also, this is 1919, where it, it lasted 29 years. <laughs> the British occupation, or not even occupation, they didn't occupy because they thought it would happen again. So also, <laughs> to put that in context, this is during World War One. Yes, so World War One. Um, there's a few actually interesting things that happen. Uh, the Ottomans and the British both try to court, uh, and the Russians all try to court <laughs> Afghanistan into joining them. Afghanistan maintains hard neutrality, and right, so the the and that's under Habibullah. And then Amanullah promises when he takes over, he's like, "I'm going to maintain Afghanistan's policy of neutrality. We're not fighting any foreign wars." And he does, and he attempts to westernize the country slowly, uh, or maybe a little quickly. So <laughs> things he focuses on are religious freedom. Nice. Um, Something Afghanistan probably rejoices yeah. in after. <laughs> and he he ended up talking to Baha'i people and stuff and about this. Um, and then he also started working on equal rights for women, which was in 1919. Yeah, which was a little less widely received by certain feudal lords and. Let's see, I believe, yeah, we have the, uh, he also focused on, yeah, so, um, removing dress codes for women. And this ends up inciting the ultra-reactionary uh, Khost revolution, 
rebellion. It's not a revolution. Uh, it's feudal lords rise up and attempt to place a different noble from the same dynasty on the throne. I think it was his cousin. Uh, they fail. Um, he crushes the rebellion down. And yeah, he continues to try and westernize. But he also only sits on the throne for 10 years before the Afghan Civil War, which is where things start to get quite interesting. And just really quickly, now that we're starting to get into like more like 20th century modern stuff um, and all these historical events have like obvious real world effects um, that we have no opinions. We're trying to like remain neutral and just enjoy the history of these subjects unless we otherwise explicitly state like we don't have any pro opinions pro any like specific ethnic groups or countries, nationalities. I would like to say we're explicitly not pro Taliban at yes. all. If that needs to be stated, uh, we're just we just enjoy the history and we like talking about these things and we hope we don't come off as try, you know if anyone takes any sort of issue with any of our comments please let us know and we'll talk about it. I might be a little anti-British. That's just you know how it be sometimes. Complete the territory. So in Afghan civil war, I'm trying to remember what sets it off, but essentially we have a Tajik tribe, the Shimari, um, rising up. And they do not like um, Amanullah Khan, who has, he, he uh, declares himself king right before this war starts. But he's well supported, he gets supported by pretty much all the other tribes. And uh, the Soviet Union is involved here. They, they back Amanullah Khan, and he also has another nobleman named Nadir Khan, who was quite powerful, who was yeah. uh, a descendant of Dost Muhammad Khan. Yep. Uh, great-grandson? Or great-grandnephew. Great-grandnephew. Nadir Khan, he takes over in 1929. Um, well, so what happens is that he he's supporting, you know, Amman Khan to get back on the throne, and he ends up taking uh, Kabul, and Amman Khan's like, cool, now make me king again. And Nadir Khan's like, nope, nope. And... He hangs out for three years. He gets assassinated. In his he ended up attempting to abolish pretty much all the, the liberal reforms of Amman al Khan, um, trying to suppress religious freedoms, make it purely Sunni, um, you know, reinforce dress codes for women, that kind of stuff. Um, he eventually gets assassinated and replaced by Muhammad Zahir Shah. Right. That's kind of the end of the civil war. Uh, and now, now we have established the kingdom of Afghanistan. It's solidly a kingdom, and it is ruled by this dynasty, um, Zahir Shah. And he, this, so eventually though, 1973, now we're getting to your stuff, Peyton. 1973, he gets overthrown by Daud Khan, who... He was a prime minister... Um, some years before, and he had actually been exiled from office by uh, Muhammad Zahir Shah. And so he comes back looking to looking to take control. So there's a coup, and because Zahir Shah doesn't want uh, a second civil war for Afghanistan, he steps down peacefully and goes into exile in Italy for some 20-whatever years. Yeah, he actually doesn't go back until 2002 when the Taliban government is formally dissolved. This is something I wanted to talk about as well, because 
I know, especially for like my generation, people who grew up during like um, the war in Afghanistan, like the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, we tend to think of Afghanistan as like this war-torn, really, really third-world, poor, like terribly managed country where it's just like wrapped by war. And, um, that actually started in the 1970s, but before that, when the the last king. Um, who was Ayer Shah, was reigning, like, Afghanistan was doing pretty well. They had flourishing universities, um, trade was good, like, the quality, life, quality of life was fairly good for the people there. Um, so just to put that in perspective, that Afghanistan was doing really well, and at this point it wasn't occupied by anybody, per se. Um, it had its own king, and they still had, like, political squabbles here and there, and, and tribal feudalism was, like still a, a part of the deal. It just was grandfathered in. But um, Afghanistan was doing really well. The people were doing really well before everything went down. And I think that will be actually a common theme on this podcast. We're going to be talking about colonization and decolonization a lot. And a lot of these places were doing just fine before <laughs> they got colonized. I mean, um, just a random example would be, I mean, post-colonization, if we're looking at modern situations, Libya mm-hmm. was... Maybe not, okay, let's, let's be real, Gaddafi's not the greatest, we'll, we'll talk about him in another episode, but um, Libya was the richest country until the U.S. invaded in 2011. Yes. It's the richest country in Africa. <laughs> not the richest country in the world, richest country in Africa. Um, but yeah, let's get back to Afghanistan. So, so yeah, so like Peyton was saying, it was doing pretty well, um, but things get kind of bad, and we're going to start talking about certain forces that start acting here. Uh, so Daoud Khan is interesting. He has quite a bit of popular support, and he is a Pashtun nationalist. Right. Um, he believes in the establishment of a unified Pashtun state, including, you know, parts of Pakistan and Kyrgyzstan and stuff that have Pashtun populations. In case anyone isn't following, the Pashtuns are the, again, like the predominant ethnic group in Afghanistan. They're like an Iranic group, so there's like um, Pashtun people in Pakistan and Afghanistan and the surrounding areas. I think it's known like colloquially as Pashtunistan, yes. wherever ever these people are. But um, a couple things about them. They are like traditionally known as ethnic Afghan people, which is pretty disputed if you're from another tribe. And they high-key oppress uh, the other ethnic groups, especially the Hazara in Afghanistan. So... Um, there's this sort of rising movement in Afghanistan that the Pashtun people are the like pure Afghan heritage people that deserve to be there and everyone else should be sub- like subservient to them. And so having a Pashtun national in office is very, very bad for all of these ethnic groups that are not Pashtun. So if you're Hazara, if you're Uzbek, if you're Turkmen, like these, this is a very problematic person to have in charge. Yeah, so he um, also so he also um, creates this what he calls the Republic, the Republic of Afghanistan. But it's a one party state and he is the president to start out with and remains so until the end of the Republic. Um, and yes, he so he also um, plays both sides of the Cold War and attempts to modernize, kinda of like his predecessors did. So yeah, and now we get to where it starts getting fun. We have the Solar Revolution which is in 1978, and Sower is the second month of the Persian calendar, so that's just why it's called that, and this was a Soviet-backed socialist revolution uh, in Afghanistan, 
and they establish the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, winning a war against the Republic. This is the second coup in, I guess, in seven years. The last one was in 73. 73, and then another one in 78, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and throughout, things are still good. Um, people, like the quality of life, at least for Pashtun families, remains fairly high. There are some, like, smaller tribal rebellions, um, just because life is getting really hard for these people. But things are, are mostly the same. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, until. one of the big things is equal rights for women. That, that the socialists declare total equality and enforce this. Um, and their kind of biggest barrier to this is religious leaders, and they end up using secret police to kill and disappear religious leaders, mullahs, and imams who disagree with them. And this ends up earning the ire of the very devout population <laughs> and creates the rise of the Mujahideen. Yes. This is, this is my favorite part. Um, so, basically the Mujahideen are... And I take very careful care, careful care in saying this, that they are the precursor to the Taliban, only in the sense that they are um, like sort of warmongering religious groups that start to pop up all over Afghanistan in response to um, these outside governments like the Soviet Union trying to tell them what to do. So they're, they're re- re- like rebellious guerrilla groups, essentially. So what happens in, so there's the coup in 1978, and then in 1979, the Soviet Union decides to full-on occupy Afghanistan. And this is sort of the beginning of the end for everything good that's going on currently. Um, Yeah, it's important to note also that the Mujahideen are a very reactionary, very conservative religious group. They are opposed to the Equal Rights for Women, um... They are, you know, they, they want absolute religious power. Um, they're not going to be great for the people who live there. So, yeah, so yeah. Soviet-Afghan war. Which we, and so the, so the Soviets uh, just full-on invade Afghanistan. Full occupation. There are bombings of Kabul. Um, rich neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods, everything alike just gets destroyed. And this war is going to continue for nine solid years, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a pretty... 79 to 89. 79 to 89. That's a, yeah, over nine years. That's a very long time to be... Just the whole time bombings continue, things are going really, really poorly. And like, um, so the Mujahideen sort of become the Afghan rebellion, or like rebellious groups, I guess. Anti-socialist reactionary force. Right, and what's strange is that uh, in this context, most of Afghanistan was backing them because they were the only thing separating Afghan Afghanistan from being completely taken over by the Soviet Union. Um, right, and you have to understand that that this Afghanistan has this policy, this history of you know neutrality, and and that empires, anyone who comes in and tries to take over, they kick them out. Right, and that's how it's always been. They have no intention to change even if it means backing feudal warlords and stuff. Um, and the U.S., of course, also steps in to back the Mujahideen, NATO, arming them uh, up until 89. Right. Which is a big deal, because then as soon as the U.S. starts to engage in warfare with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, everyone blames the United States for arming these like extremist groups, which is true, because they did arm them 
when Afghanistan was fighting the Soviet Union as sort of a, an offshoot of the Cold War, which is still going on. Um, so because of that, what are those called? Proxy, proxy war? Yeah. Because of that proxy war, the United States was backing the Mujahideen, which was uh, pretty unstable. But long story short, um, Afghanistan gets essentially bombed to rubble. And, like, huge mosques and cathedrals and, like, places of religious study, universities have been destroyed, um, embassies have been destroyed, like, anything, a lot of the pillars of, like, not, not civilization, but a lot of the very important ties that Afghanistan has to, like, communicate with other nations and countries have been severely impacted. I do want to bring up that this does not entirely start with the Soviets, um, that the Mujahideen, who... Their ideology is is Salafi jihadism. Hmm. Uh, Salafi is a an offshoot of Wahhabism. It's uh, the ideology that essentially they want enforced Sharia law and government enforced rather than people you know just following it in order to get into Jahannam or into Jana. Jahannam is hell. Uh, get into Jana um, by following Sharia law. They want the government to enforce it and. They will use violence to do this, and so. Do you want to talk about Sharia law real quick? Sure. So Sharia is complicated, and it's not. You know, you, you see those Facebook posts made by someone who's, you know, a white older white guy sitting in his car uh, with Oakley sunglasses complaining about Shakira law. Um, <laughs> Taking pot shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, Sharia law is strict religious codes to follow the teachings of. The prophets um, and very conservative, very very conservative. And, you know, so things like the dress codes for women, um, no no religions other than the prescribed one, strict food restrictions, um, things you can do, things you can say, all very very tightly controlled. And punishment for breaking these laws when you have Salafi jihadists is death because they just want to destroy sinners, and that's kind of rough for people who want to just live there. Um, so yeah, so like, obviously Sharia law is not good. I'm not advocating for Sharia law, but it's a little more complicated than rumors on Facebook will have you think. Um, and, and it's actually not that different from a lot of people you hear in the US advocating for uh, laws based on the Bible. Um, it, it's kind of similar. It's a lot of the same things, you know, no abortions, no gay marriage, uh, stuff like that that American conservatives oppose, uh, similar to conservatives elsewhere, there you go. as it turns out. Um, <laughs> People are the same. And yeah, so the, they also bombed the, the Mujahideen. They destroyed a lot of religious things that were not Islamic. So Persian stuff, um, you know, Persian sculptures and things got bombed, and some large stone Buddhas were dynamited in the 70s. Yeah, so Afghanistan's kind of just getting beat up from all sides. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, finally, finally in 1989, the Soviet Union pulls out of Afghanistan. Um, much to, like, huge rejoicing in Afghanistan. Um, Except among you know, the more liberal elements of society mm -hmm. and people who supported the government. Uh, the, the president at the time was Nashivala. Mm -hmm. He does not live very much longer after that. <laughs> yeah, so 92 is when um, 
Najibullah is taken out and um, a Mujahideen Salafi government is established. And this is a problem because the various groups of the Mujahideen don't like each other. They're very feudal and they fight a lot and they have power struggles and essentially when he leaves, when the ruler is out of the picture, there is a power vacuum and all the different factions of the Mujahideen start fighting each other in already war-torn Afghanistan and this just kind of drives the country further and further into war. There are like the bombings continue, but they become less targeted and precise, like they did under the Soviet Union. So there's like non-discretionary just bombing all over the place. Um, the the a lot of different factions of the Mujahideen, because they are trying to enforce um, Sharia law, just go around in trucks, and this is sort of the famous like Taliban red truck thing that you see uh, posted in, in, in like across the history of this period. Is you, you'll see like um, men with guns, like AK-47, sitting in just the backs of pickup trucks, and essentially what they were doing is just literally driving around the streets of Afghanistan, finding anybody that they took issue with in terms of of the laws that they wanted to enforce, and they would anywhere do anything from like harassing these people if they were like high class, you know, rich folk, maybe take some money or whatever, to serious beatings and killings, and so. It was insane. It was just massive, widespread violence going on. There's no consistent power. There's nothing, you know, uh, the Mujahideen have these NATO-backed weapons, and they have NATO-backed training, and they're just using it and taking it out on the people of Afghanistan. Right. It's also interesting. So in 89, uh, when the Soviets pull out, this is the, there's the 1988 Geneva Accord that Pakistan, Soviet Union, and the U.S. all agree on terms of peace in Afghanistan. They do not bring the Mujahideen to the table. <laughs> and as such, the Mujahideen elect to completely ignore the agreement to the treaty and kill a lot of people. Right. Um, and not maintain that peace that was somehow in um, Yeah, so the, the 90s, very rough, controlled by Mujahideen. And right up until 2001, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, they bombed the Twin Towers and or, you know, fly a plane into it, and George Bush, George Bush, right, uh, Osama Bin Laden takes credit for it, um, <laughs> and takes refuge among the Taliban who rule Afghanistan, right. and this leads George Bush to declare war on Afghanistan, and invade, and formally declare that the Taliban government is no more, but here we are sitting, it's been... How long has it been? 18, 18 years. 19 years. 19 years. Yeah. 19 years. Almost 19 years. Yeah. And it hasn't changed. Uh, in fact, it's gotten worse. The <laughs> There are more Taliban now than there were when we invaded. Uh, we have, uh, the, the U.S. military has served to create a lot of civilization. <laughs> um, the, the way we operate, you know, when we kill people, when we hit things with drones, it upsets people. And <laughs> it and when we destroy livelihoods, it, people are driven into the arms of, of groups like, like the Taliban. Um, and so this really awful, <laughs> really religious conservative force has only gotten stronger as a result of US interventionism right. in, over the last 20 years. Going back to that theme we sort of established that there's no 
formal military to fight in these wars. It's like all of these groups, the Mujahideen, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they're all guerrilla groups and they all operate in their, we're, you know, everyone has invaded their territory that they know very well and they know the people and they have allies and connections and um, it's very hard to fight a war on those terms, any war, because there's no outlined enemy. <laughs> it was the same when the U.S. invaded Vietnam, because there's no formal military, there's no... Well, I mean, there was, there was the, the NBA, but the, the majority of the fighting was done by guerrillas, by the, the Viet Minh. Right. There's no, it's not two armies on the battlefield clashing and the, the one who wins gets to take control of the country anymore. Right. Interestingly, the Soviets were actually kind of the first ones to pick up on that um, as early as, as uh, World War II, uh, even right, right before. There was um, what's called the Soviet Deep Battle Doctrine. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's really, really in-depth, but basically they were trying to redefine the way warfare was fought into not, it wasn't about grand armies. And of course, World War II kind of was, it was the big armies fighting. But since World War II, pretty much every war has been asymmetrical, and the Soviets picked up on that very quickly, figured out how insurgencies work, um, figured out how to do these kind of longer operations. Um, and, and the U.S., is, of course, is, has, is figuring that out now, and the Soviets clearly didn't know how to deal with this insurgency in Afghanistan uh, either on another level. but It's not a science. Maybe it is a science. There's, yeah, I'm sure there's a, a science to it, but... Uh, we just don't get it. Yeah, the, the imperial powers of the world right now do not understand, um, and they continue to create messes that they cannot clean up. Right. And that's essentially the, the stage right now, is the U.S. has invaded and is, quote, you know, trying to make things better and trying to, um, like, repeal the Taliban and repeal Sharia law and all of these things that are press, oppressing the um, Afghan people, but in doing so, through the use of violence and bombings and like all of this stuff, it's just a mess. Um, and Afghan Afghan people, unfortunately, are starting to side with the Taliban more and more just because there's a foreign force in their home mountains that are also Sorry. trying to kill them. Yeah, um, you know what would you do? And so this continues literally until today. No, nope, it's still going on. Um, we are still deploying troops there, um, and there are still, you know, I mean, there's a whole coalition, there's, everyone in Europe has a stake in that. Um, and then this, and this is also a precursor to the war in Syria and the, the whole ISIS saga. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point yes. in this podcast. Yes, I'm thinking Syria is going to be in the next few episodes. Um, welcome to the show, yes. <laughs> is there anything you want to add in terms of the Mujahideen, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS as like connected entities? Well, so I mean, ISIS is Al-Qaeda-backed. Um, and and Al-Qaeda... Um, uh, you know, let's save this for another episode. Okay, um, sounds good. Yeah, there's a, a ton to say about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the rise of terrorism in the Levant um, and how it also stems from imperialism. So, let's, uh, shall we call it here? Yeah, do we want to say anything else? We kind of just went through the history of Afghanistan and explained why, why things are the way they are today. I guess the whole, maybe not the goal, but um, 
probably what will end up happening in this podcast is we'll kind of go through the history of all these different nations to get a picture of what's happening in the Middle East today and why that's important. Because uh, it's probably the single most like important like geopolitical struggle going on right now. And yeah, it would be cool to just have all the different contexts to understand why it means something. But yeah, so there's Afghanistan for you in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and if you missed anything, uh, I, I, you, I'll, I'll have contact information wherever you put this. Um, tell me why I'm dumb and wrong. Uh, tell me why the Taliban are cool or whatever. But uh, yeah, uh, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Islamic No Name History No Title podcast. Masalam.